Hello. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm your host, Nikki Eisenhower, life coach and psychotherapist. And on today's episode, I'm discussing adverse childhood experiences on the seeker's path. Now, this is a very, very common study. If you're interested in mental health and mindfulness and childhood trauma and healing, you've probably seen this reference somewhere. It's the ACEs study, A-C-E, Adverse Childhood Experiences. And my boundaries course starts October 19th. And the last couple of years since I've had the show, I've done an episode each year about what the boundaries course is. Those are still there for you. So if you're on the fence about taking it, you're welcome to go find those and really listen more specifically about the course. It's important to me that I try not to repeat myself. <laughs> so I didn't want to do that this year. And I, it just hit me that we could go through the adverse childhood experiences questionnaire and really discuss it. Because this is who I made this course for. So we're going to go through it and I'm going to try to explain based on these questions what boundaries work is around each of these abuses or neglects. And I pulled this off of AmericanSPCC.org. So if you want to go check that out, you can find these questions on lots of websites online just by searching Adverse Childhood Experiences. And this, the site that I used is the American Society for the Positive Care for Children. This is the first question. And, and all that's required is a yes or a no. So it's a really easy questionnaire. First question. Did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often, A, swear at you, insult you, put you down, or humiliate you? Or act in a way that made you afraid that you might be physically hurt. I wonder how many of you listening said yes to this. Now, what are the effects of this? If we grew up with a lot of this, being sworn at, being insulted, being humiliated, being put down, lots of low vibes, lots of negativity, lots of critical vibe. That keeps a child's body in a constant stress response. This is where the PTSD-like symptoms start to develop. This is where we start to overthink because if my external world is scary, I'm going to be humiliated. 
I'm going to be insulted. I'm going to be put down. I'm going to be afraid that somebody might hurt me. Notice that it doesn't mean anybody ever did physically hurt me. The fear of that happening is enough to keep the nervous system in a hyperaroused state. When we grow up with this, what it does is it wears down our natural boundaries. The first few times a human being might insult us, it might sting. But after a while, it still stings, but the barriers come down because that insult, that humiliation becomes normalized. If you grew up being physically hurt or with the threat of being physically hurt, each time it happens, it normalizes it more and more and more and more. And the normalization of emotional or physical violence teaches us that emotional or physical violence is okay. So what happens to a lot of us? We grow up and we either become in some ways or partner with Someone who insults or puts down or humiliates, and that can be externally or internally. So a lot of you would say, oh, no, I would never say this to anyone else. And that's true, especially as highly sensitive people. We're highly dialed in to the effects of myself on another human being. We're, we're aware of that as highly sensitive people. But if I stand you in front of a mirror and go, oh, really, is that true? Do you insult yourself? Do you put yourself down? Do you humiliate or shame yourself? Have you ever physically hurt yourself? You can interpret that question a lot of different ways. Drinking way too much and being hungover, isn't that kind of a form of hurting ourselves? But it's super normalized. We don't think of it that way, do we? So boundaries work is really important. If our barriers to this type of vibe have really been beaten down and normalized because we'll go off into the world and repeat it some kind of way. Our boundaries help us keep this kind of dialogue out of our heads. If we have the impulse to lash out at someone, boundaries work helps us contain that and discharge that intensity in a way that can be useful for us without putting anyone in the line of fire. We are faced with detoxing a billion critical messages if we grew up like this. And we're also tasked while we're detoxing that with uploading an art of healthy communication. It's a huge part of why I wanted to do Emotional Badass. Because I know how important it is that we immerse ourselves in healthy dialogue to help push out and replace that unhealthy, critical, shaming dialogue. Question two, yes or no, did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often push, grab, slap, or throw something at you or ever hit you so hard that you had marks or were injured? Now, this sounds kind of like the first question. What's different? I think what this question is getting at here is roughness. Now, a while back, I'm not going to say who it was, but I went over to somebody's house for a holiday and I, I happened to see a couple who were there related to the person I was with. They're both police officers. They both came to this holiday with guns attached to them. And I watched them have one of the most violent pillow fights I've ever seen. It was insanity. No one got physically hurt, but ooh, the vibes. And I thought, what is going on here? Everything about my radar was going off. It'd be about a year, year and a half later that I would hear that this couple was going through an incredibly 
chaotic divorce and dragging the children right through it. It's the vibe of roughness, especially when we're highly sensitive, that does a lot of damage to our nervous system. It's less about getting physically assaulted and more about the constancy of the vibes. This often shows that there's an immaturity. If there's pushing and grabbing and slapping and throwing, there's some impulse control. That's not safe to grow up around someone who has an impulse control problem. That also teaches us that the biggest person in the room has the power and that we physically overtake. We get to learn some boundaries with our own anger that we have to learn how to access and really do anger differently than what we saw in our families of origin. That takes emotional boundaries work. That takes physical boundaries work. Question three, yes or no, did an adult or person at least five years older than you ever touch or fondle you or have you or have you touch their body in a sexual way or attempt or actually have oral, anal or vaginal intercourse with you? The five years is important here. This is very sticky things for us to talk about. And we don't have a lot of comfortability talking about them. But children might explore, they might experiment, whether they're being abused or not by another adult. That often is not a vibe of abuse, even if it might be an awkward memory. Why? Because there isn't much of a power differential. It really is when we're manipulated by someone who's bigger, smarter, stronger, or overpowered by a body that's bigger, that we lose our ability to choose what's going on. And it feels a certain amount of threatening, even when we can't put that into words. This is an ultimate betrayal of a body boundary. It's a manipulation of safety and security. We know that most children are abused by someone that they know, which doesn't mean, oh, somebody that they know, like, oh, yeah, that's the mailman that comes to my house. When a child knows someone, they're let into more of an inner circle. They're let in as a safe person, as a secure person. I don't need a study to prove this to me, that anyone who sexually violates a child has low to no empathy. And beyond the sexual abuse, what are the impacts of that? If we grow up with an adult that just doesn't have empathy for us and uses our body like an object, what does that teach about our emotional self? What does that teach about our body boundaries? So very often a sexually abused person will grow up and have either extreme boundaries, no one can touch me. And what we know is that often there's a lot of weight gain, there's a lot of cushion that someone wants around their body to to psychologically keep the world out and away from touching them. Or the pendulum can swing to the other extreme where someone is hypersexual, acting out, trying to control situations by going to sex and sexuality. It's a little bit of nobody will pull one over on me. I'll just always be in this sex mode. Then I can't be blindsided. Growing up and learning, which way do I lean? Where does this show up for me? Will determine what kind of boundaries someone needs to work on. Very often, some of these boundaries might be with the critical voice in the head with the shaming voice, or it might be with an impulsive voice that wants to act out or turn friend zone people into sex zone people. 
So each person gets to figure out in an intimate, vulnerable way within themselves, where is the boundary that I need? What will help me to be more in the gray between the black and white of all or nothing processing? Learning these boundaries are what help us start to feel safe in the world. And we need this safety to be able to let go of hypervigilance and overthinking. And that is a big source of emotional and physical drain for highly sensitive survivors. So we have boundaries, not just to keep bad stuff out or good stuff in. We have boundaries to understand that we have limits. We have boundaries to understand I'm a human being and not an object. And I get to have these boundaries and we get to practice that over time. And it changes who we are growing into when we give ourselves the permission of boundaries. Next question. Yes or no? Did you often or very often feel that no one in your family loved you or thought you were important or special? Or your family didn't look out for each other, feel close to each other or support each other? This is where a lot of us grow performance-based worth. I got a lot of my special feelings from teachers, from going to school, from trying to achieve A's with them and having them tell me, good girl, and having them love me and support me. I had wonderful teachers growing up. I also had a lot of confusion about who would care for me and who wouldn't and what was real and what wasn't. When someone is struggling with this, it often shows up in a therapeutic environment. For years in doing work with my healer, Lisa, I was very scared of losing her. I was very scared to trust that she could love me, that I could be lovable. It was very hard to trust the exchange of, wait a minute, I don't feel loved by my own parents or my family, but I'm going to show up and give this professional person money to spend time with me for an hour and they're going to care about me? Trauma does an interesting flip-flop. I was very cautious about someone like Lisa caring for me. But during that time, I had friendships and I had partnerships that didn't serve me, that I wasn't scared of. That's what these adverse childhood experiences really teach us. Because when we're getting that aversion, adverse, At home, our home can't be our sanctuary. So there's a flip-flop. Home is unsafe. The outer world feels safer, even when it isn't. And that flip-flop carries forward for us. I see it in client after client after client. Someone will show up with extremely safe vibes and all the warnings go off. Why? We don't have as much experience with safe. We don't have as much experience with secure We don't so much trust the feelings that people tell us they have for us when they've been used to manipulate, use, and abuse us. So in boundaries work, we work to flip-flop things back the other way into healthiness. Neglect and the absence of love or care or attention or someone lighting up for us, that's a lesson in the boundaries course, lighting up for ourselves. It's incredibly difficult to name the absence of something when we were a child. I've met many people over the course of my career who were incredibly neglected and didn't know it. Why? This is a fairly 
unfortunately, common thing. So many parents remarry and have low empathy for their children. If I've seen it over and over again, if people have enough money to maintain multiple homes, sometimes the kids get their own home. And sometimes they have a swimming pool. Sometimes they have very nice things. And they don't understand because they could have whatever food they wanted. They could ask for a toy and they could get it. And they know people who had less than them. So they see those kids as neglected, not them. And they're very concerned about why they've struggled over the course of a lifetime with drugs, addiction, dysfunctional relationships, low self-worth, anxiety, depression. We need a lot of boundaries work when we've been neglected. And if we don't do that work, we are at risk of neglecting ourselves. Do you see how that works? Healing is repairing our relationship with ourselves, growing it, honoring it. Next question. Yes or no, did you often or very often feel that you didn't have enough to eat, had to wear dirty clothes, or had no one to protect you? Or were your parents too drunk or high to take care of you or to take you to the doctor if you needed it? This question hits at worthlessness. There's an interesting thing that happens when a highly sensitive person is raised without enough care because our eyeballs are on our face and they don't point inward, they point outward. We see other people in their struggle and we give away what we most need or want. You've heard me mention it in at least one recent episode that as a kid, I had no idea how to protect myself, but wow, was I the protector of others, which meant no one really protected me. And that was a very hard thing for me to come to terms with, seeing myself as such a protector. I am the person that if I see someone getting bullied in public, I have been known to put my two cents in. It was hard for me to look in the mirror and face that I really didn't know how to protect myself. And thank goodness I have had healers that have challenged that in me. That's what our boundaries work does. It helps me boundary that and not just bleed out all of that care away when I need to retain some of that for myself. So I'm at peace now with my protector parts because I don't protect others to my detriment while I'm having a deep void of protection. I know how to protect myself and have that void filled within me. And then I can use my energy to protect anyone that I see needs protecting or use my voice to say whatever truth I see needs saying. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask them all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? Well, we hear you and we have been there too. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. Who are we? I'm Dr. Jess Steyer, a public health scientist and also co-host of the Unbiased Science Podcast. Every day, I'll chat with one or both of your new pediatrician besties, Dr. Dina DiMaggio, a general pediatrician, and Dr. Anthony Porto, a pediatric gastroenterologist. We'll talk about all the things related to our kids' health, from dealing with a colicky infant to navigating puberty in the teenage years. 
So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, now live on all podcast platforms. If we didn't have enough, often our relationship with money, if we had too much, our relationship with money is wonky. Boundaries work is essential to work on our relationship with spending and saving. The same way someone might restrict food in an eating disorder. Often survivors of a lot of childhood struggle will practice restriction, not with food, but with spending. And they will save like a miser and never really become peaceful about their relationship with money, saving and spending. We need boundaries to have relationships that are healthy with debt and credit. We use boundaries work to understand that external changes won't and don't fill the internal voids. And we work on how to keep boundaries with others who happen to be avoidant and neglectful and maybe not working on that in this lifetime. We spend a good bit of time in my course working on accepting who other people are and figuring out what boundary we have the power to enact. Next question. Yes or no? Were your parents ever separated or divorced? Now, I don't, it might be on the Patreon. I'm not sure if it's on the iTunes feed, but I've definitely done an entire episode on just divorce. I don't remember what I called it. Really looking at, it's not divorce that's bad. It's the vibes around it. Another question. Was your mother or stepmother often or very often pushed, grabbed, slapped, or had something thrown at her? Or sometimes, often, or very often kicked, bitten, hit with a fist, or hit with something hard? Or ever repeatedly hit for minutes at a time or threatened with a gun or a knife? I really despise that this question is worded as if it's always the female that's being abused. It's just not true. I think increasingly females are abusers and we're not really naming that in this modern era that is, seems to be more concerned with toxic masculinity instead of really looking at what is toxic in masculinity and what is toxic in femininity. In my household, my mother was the person who punched holes in walls, who pushed us around, who backed us into corners, who grabbed us by the arms and left bruises. My adopted dad, the abuser, and my grandpa were very gentlemen. So I challenge this question and replace was your mother or stepmother was either parent in this position. Because witnessing that, even if you were never, ever, ever hit, is just as abusive, maybe more so. It is a special kind of hell to have to witness someone else getting physically hurt and feel powerless. War zone vibes are not great petri dishes to grow up in. This makes our boundaries stretched out. We tend to believe on a subconscious level that more struggle is normal. We allow it. That fights and screaming or low vibes, war zone type fights are just the way that it is. We work with our own boundaries to understand what are our limits. What is a reasonable amount of fighting or arguing or voice raising to have within a relationship? And where is that line? This is why boundaries work is so important. Because you can't just read a book and know exactly where that line is, can you? 
It's person to person. It's circumstance to circumstance. It's relationship to relationship. I'm half Italian. Chris is fully Italian. We're a louder people than white Anglo-Saxons. We express more if we're upset. That's going to be different in terms of raising our voices. We're not screaming and yelling when we're having an enjoyable debate. So we really do have to do some personal work to figure out what these lines are and then how to negotiate that within ourselves and with another human being. Question eight, there are 10, I'm almost done. Yes or no, did you live with anyone who was a problem drinker or alcoholic or who used street drugs? Again, this question bothers me. We are way past street drugs being the main problem. Many, many people in this country have prescription drug problems on multiple prescription drugs. And then they combine them with street drugs and alcohol. My parents did not dysfunctionally drink. My parents did not dysfunctionally use street drugs. My parents hopped doctors and pharmacies to be able to take the amount of Vicodin they wanted to take under the guise of migraines. When we grow under that, we have very wonky boundaries around using substances in any capacity. How much is enough? Do we know? What's a real good amount of alcohol for anybody to drink? We don't know. Are any street drugs okay? People surely do them without dying, without getting addicted. What amount is okay? Based on our own personal family trees and experiences, we need to have some boundaries around what is wise for me? What is a limit that I need to have for myself around anything? Alcohol, gambling, porn, food, TV, video games, even reading. I would love to escape for days into reading a book. That's not okay. Not unless I really plan it out. A way to think about addiction is it's a lack of appropriate boundaries. It's a lack of limits. And our pendulum can swing. I've certainly known people who grew up with addiction in the family, who decided to never have a drink. And they've lived that way. I don't know if that's the right answer for everybody or not. I know that for those people, it kept them away from addiction. But very often, that's not enough. Often, I've witnessed people who wouldn't drink, who come from addiction, develop food addiction. Because we can live without alcohol. We can live without heroin. We can live without Vicodin and benzos. We can't live without food. So in some ways, we're not escaping. If we grew up with some of this, we're not escaping facing these boundaries. Facing where do I need limits in my own life? We want to be able to use boundaries to create stability for ourselves, to be able to trust how we're living, how we're crafting our lives so we can be proud that we're investing in our lives appropriately. We need boundaries to learn to keep chaos out and the goodness in. This is what grows us into stability. And for those of us coming from childhood chaos, the truth is we probably haven't ever felt stable. Or if we did, it was very fleeting. And paradoxically, sometimes a big fear to work on on the healing seeker's path 
is that deep down, what nobody wants to admit is we can be really scared to create and develop stability. We might be scared that it'll be boring. We might be scared that we'll turn into squares and we won't really like ourselves. We get to have boundaries, but still be interesting people. We still get to have fun. We still get to experiment with things. If we're high sensation seeking, we can figure that out within boundaries work. Especially when we face what we originally were taught about boundaries and we face what kind of life do I want to craft for myself? And we work within facing those realities instead of running from them or pretending like we don't have work to do there. Question nine, was a household member depressed or mentally ill or did a household member attempt suicide? In a household where this is going on, it's a valid question. Is anyone really getting their needs met here for real? As a highly sensitive child, if you grew up aware that a parent was depressed or mentally ill or had attempted suicide, that made you a mini adult. When a highly sensitive child is in a household and becomes aware on any level that an adult has hit some kind of inadequacy wall and isn't functioning all the way, that child takes on that responsibility. And in that moment, our childhoods become lost to us. We become responsible for things that are too big for us to be responsible for. That's where our codependency starts, is trying to caretake someone who may not know how to caretake themselves. This can create a lot of despair. If you've had to process as a child, because there's no other way to think about it, if you knew as a child that your parent had attempted suicide, that is a crushing thing to process. It is virtually impossible for any child to not take that personally. No matter how much other adults might step in and tell them directly not to take it personally, that is a crushing thing to have to sit with the thought that your parent would rather leave than stay with you. Children are egocentric by design. That's how they stay alive. That's part of how we are biologically wired to survive is that as a child, it's all about me. So that if I'm thirsty, I pitch a fit until I get something to drink. Until we grow into being able to make the choices that can take care of ourselves. And the last question is, did a household member go to prison? And that's why I didn't get a perfect score. Yes, my parent ultimately went to prison once I was in my early 20s, but not as a child. So I said no. And there's lots of research on children with parents that are incarcerated. That is, of course, a struggle for many, many reasons that I've already gone over in this questionnaire. The ACEs score, you get one point for each yes, so you could get a score of 10. It's based on 10 types of childhood trauma. The website I pulled from talked about how five of those are personal Physical abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, physical neglect, and emotional neglect. And five types of trauma are related to other family members. So it's what we witness, not just what happens to us. A parent who's an addict, a parent who's a victim of domestic violence, a family member in jail, a family member that's disorganized because of mental illness, or the disappearance of a parent 
through divorce or death or abandonment. Based on this research, it says a score of four or more starts to become serious. And the real kicker for this information, this study, what it proves, is that there is a likelihood of chronic pulmonary lung disease that increases 390% if you have four or more of these adverse childhood experiences. Hepatitis goes up by 240%. Depression goes up by 460%. And suicide goes up by 1,220%. If you have four or more, I had nine, maybe nine and a half. And this score, it's just a guideline. And if you experienced other types of toxic stress over months or years, there's a likely increase in risk of health consequences. Most of this audience would identify as women. We're who dominates in the self-development, self-help, mindfulness space. I probably have more male listeners than the average woman doing this out there. But women, I believe we have a very high heart attack rate. Taking care of ourselves and understanding how these adverse childhood experiences have impacted who we are helps us learn how to mitigate and minimize that struggle and that pain and grow into our higher self. The most important thing to remember about this is that our brains and our lives have a whole lot of plasticity. We can improve, we can grow, we can change, we can develop. We have a lot of power to soothe our nervous system and reset it. We can practice things like resiliency. These adverse childhood events, they're not 100% negative. They teach us that we're strong. They teach us that we're not so delicate, that we can survive a whole lot in this lifetime. And they force us to ask for help. I am so good at asking for help now, y'all. I wasn't when I was younger. I had to be forced into it like most of us because if we grew up with the things I mentioned in this episode, we didn't get enough help. Our receiving help muscles are very, very atrophied when we start down the healing path. That's part of why it's such an important moment in someone's life when they finally, finally act from the courage of, I know I need help and reach out to a therapist or go to something like an AA or an Al-Anon or a CODA meeting. It's such an important moment because if it's a bad experience, that person can throw all that away and never try again. And that is tragic, as tragic as everything I talked about today on this list. In being forced to ask for help, we start the healing process by growing that receiving help muscle. For many of us, the truth is, if we grew up with a lot of this stuff, having a therapist or a healer or a trusted professor or teacher is a start to developing a trusting relationship, a respecting relationship, a relationship with someone who really sees you. This is how we can learn how to let go of that critical voice and judgment we grew up with or the absence of care, neglect. And we can learn from others how to form a positive attitude, how to listen to the depth of our feelings, to learn the difference between intuition and anxiety, 
And this is how we improve our lives. And it's not fast work. But when we improve a little bit every month and every year, we will get there. My course is open to beginners and seasoned seekers together. That might seem weird at first, but it's how I teach. It's how I've always loved to teach since I started doing group work in addiction. People of different ages, people in different stages, people of different professions. There's so much that we can learn from each other, from these differences, as well as seeing others in different stages of growth. This helps remind those of us who are further down the path just how far we've come, how raw we no longer are. And if you're a beginner, being in there with some seasoned seekers helps you know where you're going and what's possible. I trust if you are meant to be there, you will be there. You have the choice in this course to hang back and do the course in super introvert mode or to get in there and participate. There's opportunities to type and share and participate. No one will see your face unless you want them to by sharing a picture. Patreon has the only code left if you want to pay in full and get a discount. Come join us at Patreon. Or you can still choose a payment plan. So you don't have to have this course prepaid before you start with me. If you're scared of the course being heavy, it might be a little bit in parts, but just like some of my episodes are, and I believe that what I've put together is an interesting and enjoyable course for work that is typically very heavy. I want you excited to connect the dots and excited to feel absolutely liberated as you step into realizing that you really do have the power to cultivate a calmer life internally and even externally and to clear the chaos and the hurt that weighs you down. Halfway through the course, I ask you to take a movie break. This course is not the kind of intensive where you have to shove the whole cake in your mouth and try not to choke. I want you to be able to take little bites at your pace. And my course is certainly not some kind of BS coaching course where I just talk to you about promoting something else of mine. It's made to ground you in reality and give you simple, strong, life-changing things to practice. And to consider how important it is to start having fun and lightness, even within the heaviness of your healing or the heaviness of a grief process. Boundaries work can, at a point, start to become fun and light and easy. And that is my goal for myself. And it is my goal for everybody that's on the seeker's path who's inviting deep, real, full whole healing. Thank you for listening to me as I find a different way to talk through my guided intuitive soul care, the boundaries course. Come sign up at emotionalbadass.com or nikkieisenhower.com now. It starts October 19th. Come secure your spot. I can't wait to meet you and to start this work. Light and love. And I'll see you here and I'll see some of you at Patreon for the next live stream and the next exclusive episode there. Until next time, those of you that I'll see here, keep taking care of yourselves. Remember that you're worth it. You always have been. Light and love. 
I'm an emotional badass, you're an emotional badass, and together we are where Moxie meets Mindful. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.